Hello, welcome to CityWire's Fun Fanatic podcast. My name is Gavin Lumsden, and today I'm discussing the renewable energy markets with Richard Crawford of Infrared Capital Partners. Richard, thanks for making the time to talk to me. It's a pleasure, Gavin. Now, Richard, you manage the Renewable Infrastructure Group, a £2.3 billion investment company uh, investing in wind and solar power and battery storage, a little bit of that, in the UK and Northern Europe. Uh, It's usually referred to by its share price ticker TRIG, for short, just in case we fall into that. Um, There's a lot of interest in renewable energy at the moment. Uh, That reflects the fact that funds like yours have been one of the few safe havens for investors this year. Your shares are down a couple of percent compared to the uh, 16% decline in the UK stock market. Now, Richard, a lot of that demand is driven by the search for reliable income, uh, which we'll come to later. But the other big driver is, of course, climate change and the need to stop producing greenhouse gases. So uh, both the UK and EU have committed to being carbon neutral by 2050, which is, seems quite a long way off. Um, where are we on, on all of that? Well, it's it's fair to say we don't yet have a path set out which takes us to being carbon neutral. Um, And this, to be fair, is being worked on, but it's already clear that it's going to require a major change. I think broadly it's fair to say that the EU and the UK achieved their 2020 targets, but that was on a path to an 80% reduction by 2050. So the targets to achieve net zero by 2050 is a, a new one, requiring an acceleration, if you like, an increase in the ambition. So inevitably, the successes that we've had in CO2 reduction so far have been the easier areas, the the lower hanging fruit, heating, aviation, shipping, many industrial processes will require similarly dramatic changes to those that we've seen in the electricity generation, and in fact, are, are now occurring in vehicles. Okay, so actually you represent the easier end of this uh, green uh, revolution, but we need to do equivalent radical uh, reforms in other areas of society as well. Uh, Yes, I I, I think that is right. And I think it's now getting the attention of the policymakers uh, as they begin to really sort of square up to the targets which have been set. Um, and uh, it's renewable energy, which was stimulated by government subsidies sort of 10 or more years ago, has been very successful. And the cost of deploying renewable energy has come down dramatically. What we now need to see is that similar kind of investigation and focus or investment and focus being into areas which are going to uh, electrify usage of energy uh, and also concentrate on the more difficult areas, um, you know, aviation, shipping, heating, the examples I just gave. I just wonder, you know, one of the thing, noticeable things about uh, the lockdown we've all been through is that, uh, you know, we hear birds singing more and things seem quieter and and there's less people driving around and working and, and pollution has, has demonstrably gone down. I just wonder now that we're easing out, but we're into this horrible recession, um, does that make it easier to achieve uh, the green targets, or does it weaken political resolve because actually we need to get the economy working and we might go back to, um, we, we, that might reduce our enthusiasm for uh, uh, for being carbon neutral? Yeah, good, good question. This is going to be one of the interesting things that we're going to see play out over the rest of this year and, and next year. I, I think the coronavirus and the recession could 
weaken political resolve. I mean, a, a little bit like Brexit has and is, it, it rather dominates the thinking and, and the policy so far this year. Whereas if we went back to 2019, I think more generally, there was a much bigger focus on climate change than we've seen this year. Um, and of course, the pandemic debt needs to be serviced and energy transition costs in the short term. Uh, we have the next United Nations Climate Summit, COP26. Um, that was due in October this year. It, it's now slipped by 20, 12 months. Understandable, perhaps, but uh, I'd like to see more discussion on this area for an event, major event that the, the UK is hosting. Um, at the end of this year, I think we'll have something of a test because the first nationally determined contributions towards the sort of ratcheting of the carbon reductions coming out of the Paris Agreement of 2015 need to be provided by each signatory to that agreement. Uh, and this should really help to illustrate the political resolve for this continued and, and ratcheting carbon reduction. Um, but, but, you know, I think there's also a positive note here. Um, there is a desire to focus the recovery funds on climate-friendly industries and, and infrastructure, and, and this could accelerate our zero-carbon transition. And, um, you know, having experienced the dire economic consequences of the pandemic, um, it may actually strengthen our resolve to decarbonize before climate change becomes unmanageable. And, and also we've seen how decisively we can act when needs must. Yes, the, the power of the state, uh, the power of the collective has been uh, demonstrated, even if it has been that the, the implementation has been a bit flawed at times. But um, what difference, uh, struck by the fact that I referred to both a UK and an EU target, what difference does Brexit make? You know, Brexit, that massive political trauma we went through a couple of years ago, seems to have fallen uh, into the background a bit, but is obviously coming into the foreground with uh, discussions for the end of year separation uh, now really uh, getting a lot of attention. Yes, quite. And, and again, the, the, the bigger risk here is, is one of distraction. So I don't think Brexit in itself should make a significant difference to the UK and, and Europe's uh, ambitions here. I mean, the UK has for a long time been a leader in climate change. It's adopted more stringent policies on carbon taxes, for example, than the EU, and it has its own separate net zero 2050 target, as does, of course, the EU. Um, so, yeah, I'm not saying that this is a risk here, but we saw in the US how politics can get in the way of collective action with the, the US withdrawing from the Paris Agreement. Uh, and I think we need to keep the, the clarity of the existential threat of climate change front and foremost and ensure we do what is best collectively to manage it. Okay, absolutely. Well, let's look at uh, your fund, Trig, uh, in a bit more detail and then maybe go on to uh, discuss the uh, UK energy market. But let's just get a handle on uh, what it is you're in charge of. Um, it, it's a big fund, £2.3 billion market uh, capitalisation. And at 69, according to the fact sheet, 69% uh, invested in onshore wind, 19% then in offshore wind, and just 11% in solar and 1% in battery. But then that's quite a new uh, new area. But um, I'm just, why is, Richard, why is there so much more wind power than solar uh, in Trig? Yeah, so, so what we're trying to do here is build a, a portfolio that's intentionally diverse within the renewables infrastructure sector. So 
wind and, and we like solar and I'll, I'll, I'll come on to why there's not so much solar um, and also battery storage projects perhaps coming more into in the future and investing widely across Europe. So we have Scandinavia, Germany, France and Ireland within the portfolio comprising approximately a half and, and the other half being in the UK. Um, and, and, and a diverse set of assets. So no assets, for example, is more than 10% of the value of the portfolio. And this is, is clearly with a, a focus on diversifying risk and, and reducing the, the exposure that we have to single points of failure, um, to, to particularly adverse weather in any particular region or any individual country regulatory change. So it enables us to, to produce, we believe, a more stable set of returns over the longer term. And you're largely a UK-based, uh, largely UK-focused portfolio, 51% uh, in the UK. And I mean, I guess the obvious point is we get more wind than sun here. Is, is it as simple as that? So that's, that's right. So and not just in the UK is the wind resource better than the solar resource. That applies to most of Europe. And in fact, if you look at the, the market, there's something like four times the investment in wind than, than there is in solar. And especially as triggers had a, a, a more focus on the, the northerly European countries, um, it, it, it's inevitable that, that the portfolio is slanted towards wind. Um, we do have several solar investments. So we have them in France and we have them in the UK, which date back to when the UK was subsidizing new build solar and then it was, was economic to build and, and, and continues to be economic to run. And we also now look at Iberia, where we may be able to increase our solar portfolio. Clearly, the solar results very strong there. Okay. Now, I'm interested, but uh, you've mentioned uh, government incentives a couple of times. Now, could you explain uh, a bit about those? Um, because in the UK, there have been two major incentives in the past, contracts for difference and feed-in tariffs. Um, what are they uh, simply and, and um, how important are they today? Yes, yeah, so, so in, subsidies have, have come around in, in order to get the sector going uh, and they have been very successful in bringing down the costs of deployment. The reality is though much in the way of the energy sector is subsidised one way or the other and we are continuing today to see subsidies, albeit at much lower rates, still being granted for new build construction. I, I note in particular in the UK in offshore wind. But if we look in the European market in Germany and France, this is both uh, this is um, offshore and onshore in Germany and solar and onshore and solar in France. So we're still seeing subsidies. And in fact, the same applies to Ireland. So we tend to end up with a mix of revenues within our portfolio. We end up with partly revenues coming from subsidy. The advantage of this is it fixes the price we get for our generation. We still have to generate the power. It will depend on the wind. That'll depend on the sun. It'll depend on the availability of our machinery and maintaining that to a very high standard. But also, we know how much we're going to get paid for each megawatt hour we generate. We then have a balance of revenues coming into our portfolio, which are actually selling into the wholesale market. And obviously, that's a more variable revenue stream. So we try to balance the two. We don't particularly concern ourselves as to whether it's the contract for difference or the feed-in tariff or the, the rock style. They're all subsidies and they're all based on the amount of power that we can generate. There are nuances on them, but 
but it's not something uh, at the broad level an, an investor needs to worry about. And if we look at collectively our revenue, it's probably about 70% of our revenues over the next 10 years we'd expect to come from the subsidies. And even though the subsidies per project are coming down for new projects being developed now, I don't really see that ratio being diluted very much. So government support, I got the impression they were they were coming down, but also being phased out and that the proportion of non-subsidised revenues was, was going to increase. Well, it does happen in some markets. You need very good weather resource. So we see in the Scandinavian market where the wind is very strong, and you can build very large scale projects. We do see projects here being built without subsidies. We can see, I think in Iberia, in Spain in particular, we can see the same thing happen due to the very high solar resource. But if we're looking at most of the markets, so the UK is certainly in the offshore market, uh, in in the the French and and German markets, we're seeing subsidies still play a a significant part and, and the vast majority of assets being developed still have these subsidies. Um, and, and these subsidies can sometimes be for, for 100% of the, the, the power that's being generated. Whereas in the old rock um, um, uh, approach, that's a renewable obligation certificates, which the UK had as their subsidy leading up to all oh, about 2017, uh, there it was only part of your revenue alongside selling the power. So this is maybe one reason why um, actually, the proportions of subsidies versus power sales have remained more or less stable. I see. I understand. OK, now, moving on, just thinking of um, you know this year's experience, um, what were the challenges for your operations manager? The, 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 the com- There's a separate company that called RES, R-E-S, is that right, that, um, uh, that runs uh, your, your uh, sites. Um, what were the, the challenges that they faced uh, when you know, people's freedom to movement was obviously restricted? Yeah, so we have um, Renewable Energy Systems Res, as you correctly say, is the operations manager for TREG. I mean, they're the the world's largest independent renewable energy company. They have a specialism in in developing and constructing as well as operating renewables. And so vastly experienced. And what we found during um, the COVID lockdown period is that generally we were able to continue to manage our assets at very close to their normal levels of generation. Um, We got teams out successfully working uh, remotely. Um, This is, of course, all our teams working remotely has been a challenge which has been faced by many businesses. And I think it's generally a credit to IT teams everywhere that how smoothly this has gone. I'm certainly both infrared and res. We're working at our our usual capacity uh, remotely with business continuity plans working well. And then turning to the assets themselves and the uptime, um, we're helped by having a, a, a well-constructed portfolio, as I said, with, with no asset dominating the portfolio. Um, the nature of the assets, remember, typically they're away from the major conurbations. So perhaps the pressures on lockdown are a, a little bit less. We have locally based technicians. We also have a lot of preparatory work o- on our sites. So they can usually be operated uh, without on-site daily attendance, and, and that includes remote resets where needed. And then finally, I think an important thing, we hold a lot of um, spare parts where there are significant lead times, and, and, and that in again helps us to maintain uh, the generation. We're probably running within a percent of our normal levels of, of um, up 
time, I would say. Thanks, Richard. Now we've got a, a better idea of what uh, Trig does. Let's um, turn to the UK energy market um, and where we are with that. Uh, I was looking at your website. I saw that uh, in terms of uh, sustainable uh, energy, uh, Trig itself generated over 3,000 gigawatts of renewable electricity last year, and that powered 700,000 homes and avoided 800,000 tonnes of carbon dioxide emissions. It sounds very impressive, but I guess it's a very small part of the overall picture. Clearly it is, yes. I mean, it's a, it's a sizable portfolio amongst the, the listed um, renewables yield company peer group. Um, but, but in, in fact, the, the, the largest within that peer group. But yes, when you're talking about overall electricity generation, clearly, clearly a, a small part. What proportion of uh, electricity generation is coming from renewables? Because there seems to be uh, steady advances on that front. Yeah, um, it's an increasing portion. If you look at the UK at the whole, as a whole, probably something like 40% from renewables, half of that coming from wind, the other half coming from a combination of biomass, solar and hydro. Um, perhaps 40% again coming from fossil fuels, but the vast majority of that now being from gas, um, coal and oil being probably only 1% or so. Uh, and then the balance, some 20% from nuclear would, would, would be the approximate energy mix. Uh, and this really has led to, to, to headlines like last year, you saw that um, perhaps renewables was beginning to generate more than fossil fuels. And, and, and that's beginning to happen as we have this sort of balance between the two. Um, and also this year, we've heard about long periods of, of being coal free. And this is as really as renewables is increasingly deployed and, and, and taking over a larger share of the generation. And yet it's uh, almost paradoxical that uh, with this advance of renewable energy this year, one of the major uh, events uh, aside from the pandemic, was the slump in the oil price. And that uh, the effect of that is to uh, lower uh, power price forecasts going forward. And that's had a big impact on uh, your sector, on uh, the valuations of you and other renewable funds, uh, hasn't it? In, in April, uh, Trig reduced its net asset value by 4.5% to take account of the changing uh, the, the falling uh, projections around uh, power prices. Um, do you see what I mean? It does sound a bit ironic that uh, there you are, a clean energy fund, um, and your valuations are affected by the price of oil. Yes, uh, actually, less so oil, um, in fact, because it's a relatively low contributor to the generation mix. But what you're seeing is that the the, the, the highest cost of generation tends to set the price across the market. And, and this is why the fossil fuels and the carbon prices actually become relevant when you're looking at the that element of the, our revenues that comes from selling power into the wholesale market. Um, but it, it's it's probably more the more the gas and the carbon that that's that's influential here than than the oil. But I would say that the 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 four four to five percent reduction that you referenced that was actually mostly caused by the uh, pandemic and the significant reduction in demand that we have seen as a result of that. And that reduction in demand, um, well, look, you know, it's it's got to be a, 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 a best a, a guesstimate how, how quickly that's going to return. 
but generally within the forecasting community for power prices, it's seen as returning within a five-year period. Uh, it seems reasonable to me. And, and also it is supported by the forward pricing within the market, which actually has the bulk of the recovery within a two-year period. There's also uh, a concept, a rather grisly term used uh, in relation to renewable funds of uh, cannibalisation, which I think is uh, referring to the fact that your renewable funds are contributing to the decline in long-term energy prices, and that can have a negative impact on valuations. Can, can you explain, uh, have I got that right? What, what, what is cannibalisation? We're pretty close there, uh, Gavin, and, and, and it is a grisly term, isn't it? But uh, it is simply the fact that with renewables, let, let's, let's take a wind farm as our example, as it makes a significant portion of the overall generation those other generation technologies with a higher marginal cost are going to be fossil fuel generation, will tend to get displaced by the wind energy when it's blowing hard. Uh, and what this means is that renewables assets will tend to generate at a time when the power price will be beneath the average, which, say, a 24-7 baseload generator would expect to get, or indeed a peaking plant, which is seeking only to generate when prices are at their highest. And this, this overall effect we refer to as cannibalization. Uh, what's important, though, is that we take it into account when doing our economics on, on the viability of any investment. Yeah, it sounds like it's quite difficult to forecast power prices at the best of times, but in the midst of a recession and a green energy revolution, uh, are there a Big, big variations in the forecasts out there? Yeah, it's a, it's a fair point, Gavin, and, and, it, and it's why that portion of, of revenues that comes from the from the subsidies is, is relevant um, uh, to, 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 to our, our, our visibility of, of revenues looking forward. Now, um, clearly, um, demand and supply are necessary components when you're forecasting the price of most things. Um, and, and there are many other variables, and we've touched on fossil fuels and, and carbon prices already. But COVID has been a big interruption to electricity demand. Um, and equally, we've got this um, sort, sort of, you know, green revolution going on where we're transitioning energy over to have more renewables, but equally also to use more electricity um, for our energy needs. And, and it's a question of balancing out that increase in supply, but also increase in demand. And clearly net zero is a very ambitious target for us all. And it will be important that the, the energy markets continue to support the required level of investment that's needed in these sectors. Yes, have you got any idea what impact uh, the development of electric cars uh, will have in, in this equation? It's a, it's a point that's been raised by our readers a, a few times. Yeah, I, I think there's, there's two impacts from, from electric cars. One is that at the outright demand level, and, and the other is when that demand occurs. So in, in outright demand, I think most estimates I've seen have said, well, when we're completely all cars are, are electric, you're talking about an increase in power demand of somewhere between 15 and 20%. And that's significant. But of course, there's a time lag associated with that transition, if you take the average age of a life of a car, 10 years or, or, or whatever it is. Um, but we can see that we're on that journey. Uh, but the, the, the equally uh, important and, and good news with uh, electric cars is that we have the ability to choose, uh, to a large extent, 
when they charge. And if you're going to get a situation where there's more supply through the renewables of power and it's at night, and that's also when we're then going to probably be charging our power, our cars, that's obviously um, very beneficial. And that can have quite a difference to the capture prices for renewables, much more than the 15 to 20% increase in demand might suggest. Oh, that is interesting. Thanks for explaining that. Okay, well, listen, the reason we talk about all this power price forecast is because, as you've said already, that uh, you make your money from selling uh, power to, to the grid and the money, the income you make, uh, you pass on to shareholders uh, in dividends. Your target for this year uh, is 6.76p, um, which is covered, well, you hope to be covered by cash. Um, but broadly, the distribution policy uh, is uh, is that you want to grow the dividend uh, in over the years, but it's no longer linked to inflation. With Trig, we have a, a strong track record of increasing the dividend each year and targeting a 1.7, 1.8% increase this year, 2020, over 2019. And so the, the, the board of the company's aim is to continue to increase the aggregate dividend to, to the extent that it's prudent for us to do so. Now, one factor that we do look at is the levels of inflation across Trig's markets. And, and so that is a factor when, when considering the increase that can, can prudently be managed. But, it, but it's clearly also necessary to look at the other factors that, that make up the revenues and outlook for power prices is one, operational performance of the portfolio is is the other and i think what investors want most from us is to have sustainability um within the the dividend rather than any particular um and and it, and, and in reality slightly arbitrary fixed um in, increase um which um a, 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 an individual inflation measure in in one country would provide Okay. Now, you've been very successful in and regularly raising new money from investors. Uh, the last TAP issue in May uh, raised £120 million. Pounds, so it was uh, a strong uh, investor demand again. But um, there was some comment about the premium at which the shares were priced, uh, given the, the pressure on uh, NAV from falling power price forecasts that uh, you'd already uh, disclosed. Uh, as I said, that didn't affect the demand for the offer. But what was your response to, to, to those comments? Yeah, it's a, a fair, fair point. Um, so we, we raised £120 million in May of this year um, at, 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 a, at a, a premium. Um, but if we looked at the two issues we made in 2019 um, in aggregate, raising uh, just in excess of £500 million, each of those raises was he heavily oversubscribed. Uh, and we need to set a price that's fair to existing shareholders who may not be able to participate in a particular issue, uh, as well as uh, naturally ensuring sufficient demand. Um, and you know the the demand was was equally heavy in May as it had been in in each of the issues in 2019. So so I think reasonably priced. I mean, and indeed, if you looked at a current stock price, it's probably at a, around about a 10p premium to the to the May issue price. So I think it's been good news for for new shareholders too. OK, and the, that's true. It was priced at 120p. And uh, when I looked yesterday, they were 
131. So, yeah, you're right. Um, the reason you issue shares is to raise money for new investments. Are there any of your markets um, in the UK and uh, Northern Europe that are getting overheated because there is so much money uh, going into the sector, it seems? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um something we are, are routinely alert to and now uh, as strongly as ever. I mean, if I look back over the infrastructure market for 20 years, um, it's been maturing and attracting increasing allocations from institutions, pensions and the like. Um, and over the last 10 years, we've seen this happen with renewables as a sort of subset of that infrastructure market. And I think that this actually has increased um, most recently uh, as um, people, investors, particularly like the long-term sustainability of, of the sector. Um, so, yes, it, it's a risk. So a couple of things we need to watch out for here. I mean, we, we, we sometimes see strategic positions being taken with by, by buyers. And, and this is really where a, a, an individual buyer is, is looking and seeing value beyond the fundamentals of the risk return of the cash flows, which is what we're looking to. So sort of mar market entry position or, or repositioning of the business. So perhaps a, a fossil fuel business wanting to 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 become uh, into a, a, a renewables business or somebody perhaps wanting to enter the European market. And so in this case, you've got to be firm on your valuations and, and, and not chase those opportunities. And, and the other thing we've seen once or twice in this industry is where the balance of supply and demand for a particular individual asset class tilts too much in the, the favor of the seller with with too many buyers then diminishing the value we saw this in the uk following the slowdown of onshore wind and solar development about three years ago when actually going back to your earlier question the subsidies for those particular sectors were withdrawn uh, and then we saw greater value in europe where where projects continue to be developed um, creating the, the, the supply to match out um, with demand. You know, we've actually shifted Trigg's investment policy to accommodate more uh, European projects within the portfolio. And, and we probably still see greater value now of, say, onshore projects uh, in France than, than in the UK. Um, this may ease going forward. We see more onshore development in the UK. I think, I think that could be coming. I think political sort of resolve against onshore may, may be softening. Um, and of course, we also have the offshore wind market now um, in, 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 in full, full counter. Um, and, and that's a very different scale of investment to onshore, but nevertheless creating a, a home for investors' cash. And you've got, you've got more projects under construction in the portfolio than you did in the past, because uh, previously, weren't you committing uh, to invest in uh, plants when they were up and running, but now 8% of the portfolio is sort of building uh, plants in uh, France and Scotland. It's not changed, not really changed. Um, we've we've always had a, a limit, an upper limit of 15% of the portfolio value being in construction. And, and for very much the reasons you say, you we, we're essentially a yield player, payer. Uh, and you know we we want our assets to be generating and and, and generating a yield for, for the dividend, um, but you know sometimes you know it's about hunting out value and we can sometimes secure better value entering a project earlier, um, and our current level of construction activity, uh, as you say, around about eight percent. That, that that's not untypical.
Okay. Now, well, we've talked a lot about Trig. Let's have a quick word about uh, the company you work for, Infrared uh, Capital, um, Infrastructure Specialist, uh, which you've been working for for a long time. But in the last year, um, the company was bought by Sun Life of Canada, obviously a big uh, Canadian financial institution. Um, what changes or opportunities is that uh, bringing you and the team? Yeah, so I think this is undoubtedly an exciting period for the for the development of of infrared i mean sun life major financial services organization assets under management canadian about 1 billion dollars active in many markets countries worldwide um but but for infrared it will remain a distinct business within sun life continuing investing its equity into its in, into what we call real assets um, in, in many markets in the world. And um, Sun Life will be investing $400 million of seed capital to support new funds for the business, including notably a, a new North American renewables fund um, focused on the energy transition, which is going on over there. That North American fund, is that something you're working on or is that colleagues? Who... And not, not, not myself. My, my responsibility um, is... Uh, on onto Trig and and my 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 area of focus is European markets, um, but but we have a large team and we have had for several years a, a team based in New York. Okay, and how did you how did you get into uh, renewables and uh, into this career? Because I, I I note from uh, looking at your uh, bio that uh, you've been at Infrared uh, since the company was uh, founded. I think uh, and it was spun out of. Uh, HSBC, perhaps, but you were involved anyway with uh, the launch of Hickel, which is obviously the uh, the group's other big uh, investment company. In fact, it's slightly bigger at three billion pounds. Um, a well-known social infrastructure fund, anyway. Um, but yeah, what was your uh, career path? Yeah, so I've I've worked at Infrared or its predecessor, at, which is the same the same company lineage since two thousand and two when I when I joined the the team, which then was sort of five or ten years old. Um, had just been actually bought, acquired by by HSBC, um, and infrastructure then was a was a much smaller market infrastructure in terms of equity investments and institutions uh, uh, investing into this asset class, and it really at that point was mostly around what was then called PFI and became PPP, and I had been working. I mean, I my my background is. Um, go back back to my degree civil engineering and then I trained as an accountant um, and I had worked in sort of consultancy and corporate finance in, in at Ernst & Young for several years and at Ernst & Young I, I sort of came across this this sort of privatization and then PFI concepts and, and got very interested about it and I've always enjoyed infrastructure um, and and I thought yeah look if I can if I can sort of marry together my interest in finance with my my interest in in large infrastructure that makes a lot of sense. And so back in the nineties, I'd have been building the financial models which would underpin these cash flows for sort of twenty or thirty years for sort of roads, railways, buildings, or all, all, all sorts of large infrastructure projects. Um, and and that sort of led through. I I then worked a little bit in industry for for construction companies who were heavily involved on the the, the building and the operational side. Uh, again, within the same asset class, um, and then as, as you you observe, we went on and we, we within uh, within HSBC Stroke Infrared, we 
we we, we launched Hickle. Um, and about that time, renewables was just about becoming becoming interesting. So that would have been 2006, 2007, very early stages of, of renewables. Difficult judgment at that point, to be honest, whether it was going to, going to stick the course and, and was this investment, initial investment that was being made in renewables going to actually, um, going to actually last and, and, and create a sustainable um, investment opportunity. Um, but we decided that, that there was a, a good chance that it would. And, and, and so we, we began to, to launch dedicated vehicles purely to invest in renewables. And that naturally led on to the, to the creation of, of, of Trig, which we actually set up 2013. Um, uh, and, and again, very early into that market, um, as we were with with Hickle back in 2006. Okay, so you're a first generation uh, sort of invest, investor in, in that area, but uh, broadly your, your profile fits a kind of a well-known fund manager sort of career path, just adjunct, I suppose, to the stock market, public stock markets. Um, is it becoming a, a more well-trod path by by uh, by graduates? So are they looking to footsteps do you think i i i say that's that's correct certainly um if we look at the the graduate intake or not so, so much graduate but graduate sort of plus a few years is typically where we have our intake very very high quality um individuals coming in uh, and and pleasingly many nationalities and this is really important for us because you know we, we're looking at projects in different parts of the world we we want people with with that kind of breadth of experience and they're by no means not all all um, people from a finance background. We, have, we, we particularly like um, engineering backgrounds. Um, anybody who who's interested and in really understand the asset classes, this is this is what we like. Um, we we have have a lot of recruits also within our organisation who've who've come from the construction industry or the the facilities management industry, and these people become really really important enriching our our understanding so i would say there are many career paths which you can use um and and, and end up doing uh, something similar to to myself and and my colleagues within infrared well richard it sounds like you're ticking all the boxes uh sustainability and diversity that sounds very encouraging um richard thanks very much for your time been very good to uh, talk about what trig's up to and uh, the prospects for renewable energy thanks very much yeah it's been a pleasure thank you 